Good afternoon, my name is Brian Parks. I'm the senior pastor here at Covenant Hope Church. If you asked your friends, your work colleagues, your family members this question, how would they answer it? Does even the smallest sin deserve eternal punishment from God? Does even the smallest sin deserve eternal punishment from God? What would they say? Can you guess? What would you say? Every two years, the ministry that theologian R.C. Sproul founded conducts a theological survey of people. Sadly, it's not a worldwide survey, but it might help us to see what some people think, at least in the United States of America, so you'll have to bear with me. When asked, does even the smallest sin deserve eternal punishment from God. And this was a random survey of people in the United States, not people that said they were Christians. Almost 70% said no. Even the smallest sin does not deserve eternal punishment. Almost 60% said a very strong, absolutely not, to the question. So they must believe that there are some sins that don't deserve eternal punishment. It begs the question, will God judge our sins? And if He does judge our sins, which ones? And what about Jesus? Does He have a role to play in judging people? Well, that's a question that we'll see answered in our text this afternoon. Turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11, and we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 23. You'll be helped if you have a Bible with you. Perhaps the person next to you will share their Bible with you if you don't have one with you. Or if you'd like, if you'd like a Bible as a gift from us, we have some Bibles at the very back table, and one of our ushers will hand you one of those and you can use it. Just make your way back to the back of the room or raise your hand and they'll bring it to you either way. Let me read Mark chapter 11, verses 12 to 33 to you. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers." And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, 
and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass. It will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. And so they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we love the grace and mercy that Jesus Christ offers to us, but we hesitate to rejoice in your just and good judgment of sin. Open our hearts to the beauty and the goodness of judgment. Sober us and increase our fear of you, God. Fear that your word says is the beginning of wisdom. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, the sermon in a single sentence is this, King Jesus has authority to judge faithless religion. King Jesus has authority to judge faithless religion. There's going to be three points to my outline this afternoon, and I'll tell them to you as we move through them. In last week's sermon, Jesus was called son of David by a blind man who he then proceeded to miraculously give sight back to. Son of David, of course, would be a royal name. The Scriptures proclaim that the Messiah sent from God would be a son of David. And then Jesus entered into Jerusalem riding on a colt like an Old Testament king would with crowds of Jews throwing their cloaks down on the ground before him and waving leafy branches in celebration of him. And to us, it looked a little bit like they understood that Jesus was the coming king. But when he arrived into Jerusalem and at the Jewish temple that first evening, in verse 11 it describes that the crowd had dispersed. They had all left him. It was kind of lonely, just he and his disciples. And It kind of points to the idea that maybe the crowds didn't quite understand who this Jesus was. At night, Jesus is staying in a nearby town of Bethany. It's outside of Jerusalem. And he and his disciples would travel into Jerusalem by foot each day. Each evening they returned to Bethany. In the mornings they'd return to Jerusalem. And it's on that walk into Jerusalem where our author, Mark, the author of the Gospel of Mark, continues his true accounts of Jesus' life in our passage today. Now, once they're inside the city on that very next day after he had arrived in Jerusalem, 
we quickly learn that Jesus hasn't come to congratulate the religious leaders and stand in awe of the great temple. No, instead he's come to pass judgment against it. The first point in the sermon this afternoon is Jesus condemns corrupted religion. Jesus condemns corrupted religion. We're going to look at verses 12 through 21 corresponding to that point. Jesus condemns corrupted religion in these verses. The passage begins on that walk from Bethany to Jerusalem, actually. They're not in the city yet. Jesus is hungry, and he sees a fig tree that's covered with leaves, and so he goes to it, presumably to find figs that he could pick and eat. But there's no figs on that tree, nothing but leaves. And in fact, Mark tells us that it's not the season for figs. But assuming that our passage takes place in the weeks just before the Passover feast, which we'll come to, which was when Jesus was crucified, this tree should have had at least unripened figs on it, and those were some fruits that the Israelites did eat, unripened figs. But Jesus finds absolutely nothing on this tree that's edible. And then Jesus proclaims out loud to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. Now, Christians and non-Christians have long struggled to understand what Jesus was doing here. The famous atheist Bertrand Russell, who wrote the book, Why I'm Not a Christian, said that in this passage here, we see Jesus' vindictive fury in blaming the tree for not having fruit on it. Another scholar said of the episode here that this was a tale of miraculous power wasted in the service of an ill temper. I once had a good friend of mine who's Muslim, and he told me that in this passage, Jesus was just being plain old mean, that he was heartless to curse this tree, and that it was evidence that Jesus was not God. Well, you should know that this is the only miracle of destruction that Jesus performed in all of the Gospels. And so it's very, very unique. But I think they, Bertrand Russell and all the others, and we need to look deeper than simply writing Jesus off as being unreasonably angry with a tree. First of all, the encounter with the fig tree doesn't end there in verse 14. Jesus and his disciples walk back past the tree the next morning, and they comment on it. And in between, Jesus encounters the money changers in the temple, and we see all of the uproar that happens in between. Now, whenever Mark, the gospel of Mark, the author of the gospel, sandwiches one scene in between another scene, He wants us to relate the two to one another. He wants us to learn from each one about the other. And so the cursing of the fig tree tells us something about Jesus and his anger in the temple courts. In addition to that, in the Old Testament, the fig tree was oftentimes symbolic of the nation of Israel. God described Israel as a fig tree, his fig tree. And so, in many verses, like Hosea 9, verse 10, he says this, Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel, like the first fruit on the fig tree. In its first season, I saw your fathers. 
Even more telling, many of the references in the Old Testament show God judging Israel because they are a fig tree without fruit. They're fruitless. In one of our scripture readings earlier in the service, we read from Jeremiah 8, 3 through 13. And in that passage, God, through the prophet Jeremiah, is condemning Israel for their sin and especially their leaders for acting like they're faithful to the Lord in the things that they say, but all the while their lives are filled with sin. They say things to make themselves look righteous, but they act in sinful ways. And so in Jeremiah 8, 13, the last verse of that passage, God says, When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. So fruit on the vine or figs on the fig tree, it represents spiritual fruit, a life of faithfulness, acts and deeds that correspond with faith. So God is saying, these people... They're like a fig tree with lots of leaves where you would expect to find fruit, but in fact, there's not any fruit at all. It's empty. Now, you might remember as well, back in the fourth chapter of Mark's gospel, that parable about the seeds that fell on the different soils. Do you remember that parable? The seeds fell on four types of soils. The first three failed to produce a plant that bore any fruit. Only the last seed fell on good soil and it produced fruit. Listen to Jesus' description of what that third failed soil produced. And others are the ones sown among the thorns. That's the third soil. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches And the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Unfruitfulness. It's like no figs on a fig tree that seems like it should have figs. There's so much more here than a hungry Jesus being angry with a tree. Jesus wasn't hangry. Jesus is acting out a parable. He's acting at a parable that doesn't have anything to do with anger towards a tree. He's giving them a symbolic preview of his judgment against the corrupt religion that he would find at the temple. And the next scene confirms it. Look with me at verses 15 and 16. And they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Now, we've not seen Jesus do anything like this so far. (laughs) It's amazing. I mean, he may not have been truly angry with the fig tree, but Jesus is filled with righteous anger against those who were at the temple. And now at this time, money changers were set up in what was called the court of the Gentiles. It was a huge area. It was actually 450 meters long and 300 meters wide. It was the one place in the entire temple complex where Gentiles or non-Jews could go into the temple area and pray. They weren't allowed any further in, closer to the temple. And the money changers are necessary because the Old Testament law required that a temple tax 
be taken. And people who pilgrimed from other places throughout the country, maybe even other nations, would come there to Jerusalem and they needed to convert their currency to what was the equivalent of a shekel, an Old Testament form of coinage. So those money changers were there. They had a reason to be there. Jesus was also driving out those who sold and bought, and he was turning over the chairs of those who sold pigeons. Now, that market needed to be at least somewhere to sell animals that were going to be sacrificed. Pilgrims needed the animals for sacrifices at the temple. And in fact, pigeons were prescribed in the Old Testament as a sacrifice that was acceptable to the Lord, given by the poorest of people. They were the least expensive sacrifice that someone could make. But the court of the Gentiles was never intended to be turned into a souk or a market. Now, this could have happened outside of the temple compound, but this entire market had only in recent years, it appears, been allowed by the religious authorities to take place there in the court of the Gentiles. And you should know it was very, very profitable for the religious leaders as well. But when it filled that court of the Gentiles, there was nowhere for them to go and pray. It was busy, it was congested, it was loud and noisy. I mean, can you imagine trying to pray in a crowded, noisy souk like the ones down near the creek? It was near impossible. What a sight this was. Jesus going through this area, turning over the tables, knocking over cages of pigeons. I imagine animals probably got loose and were running everywhere. It was chaos. And in the midst of it all, Jesus was teaching. I imagine that he had to shout over the incredible din and noise of all the chaos. He must have shouted when he said, Is it not written that my house shall be a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus was railing against the open market that the leaders were allowing in the temple. And he's quoting from Isaiah and from Jeremiah. We read in the passage in Isaiah 56, 3-7, where God declares that His holy mountain will be a house of prayer for all peoples. That was that passage that we read together about the foreigner being welcomed into the house of the Lord about the eunuch who considers himself a dry tree actually being given something better than sons or daughters. The entire passage tells of how God would bless the Gentiles who keep His covenant, that they would be included one day in His covenant people. They'll be accepted by the Lord. But the common expectation of the Jews of Jesus' day was actually that the Messiah would return and he would instead force the Gentiles, the aliens, and the foreigners out of Jerusalem. That's what they believed commonly. I guess they weren't reading the scripture. But Jesus doesn't clear the temple of Gentiles. He's actually clearing it for the Gentiles. And his anger is at those who are in charge of all of it. He says the temple's not to become 
a den of robbers. He's quoting from Jeremiah 7 there when he speaks of a den of robbers. This is what he says, Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. He's speaking about the leaders. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? And God continues to speak in Jeremiah 7 through the prophet. And he promises destruction for the place where this corrupted religion was taking place. In that day, in Jeremiah's day, he's saying, go back and look at the place called Shiloh. Go and look and see what I did to it. Where the tabernacle was. God had leveled it. Because of the corruption of the religion that had taken place there. All of this righteous anger of Jesus was on display and his tough teaching was shouted where the chief priests and the scribes could hear it. And their response? Well, look at verse 18. They heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. And they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. The leaders feared him. The crowd was in awe of him. The unparalleled authority of Jesus could not be denied. And at the end of this scene, Jesus and his disciples leave the city when evening comes. And the next morning, on their way into Jerusalem, they spot the fig tree that Jesus had declared would be forever fruitless. And it was withered to the root. The cursed and withered fig tree parable was complete. That's the picture. That's the picture of what Jesus is going to do to this corrupted religion. It was being condemned and judged by Jesus. Now, when you picture Jesus raging through this court of the Gentiles and overturning tables and casting off cages of pigeons and teaching angrily there, I wonder, are you thinking, it seems like Jesus is just losing it. <laughs> I mean, was this a case of, you know, first century road rage on Jesus' part? No, absolutely not. God is holy and pure, and He's completely good. And He hates sin because it and it alone has brought death and pain and suffering into the world. And so when God gets angry at sin, He's entirely right to do so. It is just. There was no sin in Jesus on that day. There was no sin in Jesus on any day. He was acting with a pure heart against wickedness and corrupt religion. Be assured that God's anger is always justified. It's always justified. He's not like us. We often sin in our anger. But it's possible, it's possible to be angry and not to sin. And that's how God the Father and His Son Jesus and the Spirit always act. Friends, this same Jesus is your King and my King. And He has authority over our lives. He's your judge and my judge. 
Are you tempted to think that doing some Christian activities automatically makes you right with God, like these religious authorities thought that they could say the right things and then get away with all kinds of sin in their lives? Are you tempted to think that if you do these Christian things that, that it makes up for sin and that you don't need to pay attention to the sin in your life in other areas? That's just like the Jewish leaders who were putting their hopes and their religious practices at the temple when all the while God saw and was angered by all the sin in the rest of their lives. They thought that doing their religious duty made them exempt from living a holy life. But it doesn't. That is empty and corrupt religion. The prayer and the sacrifices at the temple were there to point them towards repentance and living holy lives. And it's the same for us with regard to participation in things that we do together as Christians like church attendance or prayer together or reading our Bibles. Those things are meant to encourage us and equip us to live holy lives, not exempt us from living holy lives. If we don't see that, we risk the judgment of God against us for the very same corrupt practices that Jesus was condemning at the temple. Now, these words of Jesus were not just empty. Jesus had the authority to condemn the temple and those who propped up its corrupted practices. Later in Mark, Jesus will declare that the temple will literally be destroyed, and it was 40 years after the life of Jesus. And it's never been rebuilt to this very day. Jesus' word comes true. I wonder if you caught what Jesus was saying was one of the worst outcomes of the temple's corrupted religion. Did you catch that? The nations, the people of the world, were being crowded out from coming and praying to the one true God. The profit-making market that these religious leaders had set up in the court of the Gentiles was squeezing out one of the main purposes of the temple, to be a witness to the world, showing who the true God was. God had told the Israelites when he rescued them from Egypt that you will be unto me a kingdom of priests. The world was supposed to know who Yahweh was because of Israel but they failed. If you consider yourself a Christian, remember that you're always presenting some kind of witness to the world. You're always presenting a witness. It might be a good witness or it might be a bad witness. When we trust in our religious practices and we ignore the sin in the rest of our lives, we're offering the wrong kind of witness to the world. We're witnessing actually to a lie. We're not pointing people toward the true God. We're leading them away from God. We're playing a part in keeping them from God. What is your life like in the workplace? Are you living to please Christ there? If they know that you attend church or that you pray or that you read your Bible... If they know that you call yourself a Christian, are you helping or are you hindering them from knowing the true God by the way you conduct yourself there? 
What about those of you who have non-Christian friends that you socialize with? And I hope that all of you have non-Christian friends that you spend time with, that you build relationships with, that you're praying for to come to the Lord. What does your life say to them about Christianity? What would they know about Christianity from you? Brothers and sisters, we must not be the fig tree that has leaves but no fruit. After Jesus condemned the corrupted religion of the temple, which was preventing prayer in the court of the Gentiles, he commended faithful prayer to his disciples. That's the second point this afternoon. Jesus commends faithful prayer. He condemns corrupted religion, and then he commends faithful prayer. That's in verses 22 through 25. But first look at 22 through 24. Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. These are amazing verses. They're on their way to Jerusalem and and so Bible commentators say that Jesus might have been speaking about several different mountains that they were either on or were very near, nearby to them. They would have likely been walking on the Mount of Olives, which was taller than the mountain that Jerusalem was actually built on. Old Testament prophecy in the book of Zechariah foretold that when the Messiah came, the Mount of Olives would be split in two and leveled as the Messiah established His reign on earth. So it could have been the Mount of Olives that Jesus was speaking about. Or another possibility is that Jesus was referring to a nearby mountain that Herod the Great had leveled in order to protect a fortress that he had built. They had literally moved the mountain into a big work, a berm work around the fortress. Or Jesus may have been speaking about the destruction of the Temple Mount as well. Whichever mountain that Jesus was speaking about, we have to ask the question, what's at the heart of what Jesus wants to teach his disciples here about a mountain being thrown into the sea if you pray? Back in chapter 9, Jesus had said something similar to a father who was struggling to believe that Jesus could cast a demon out of his son. The disciples had failed and... Jesus eventually said to this father, all things are possible for one who believes. It's an amazing promise. Here, it should be obvious to us. Jesus is illustrating the power of a prayer that's prayed in true faith. It can move a mountain. Our infinitely powerful God responds to His faithful praying people with that kind of miraculous working. It's true. But before we start dreaming about what we want God to do for us, we have to admit that these verses and others like them, they're too often abused by Bible teachers that don't understand them rightly and they don't teach them well. They're often lifted right out of their context in Scripture and they're applied to anyone who wants anything. And so people are encouraged by some preachers to pray for luxury cars or a brand new mansion or expensive clothes or promotions at work, practically anything you want. 
some of these preachers will tell you. But who does Jesus say is providing the answer to these prayers? It's God. God provides the answers to the prayer. God doesn't do anything that doesn't advance His kingdom in some way. You should know that. Praying in faith doesn't only mean that if you pray with absolute certainty that you'll get what you ask for. It doesn't mean that God's hands are tied and that He has to give you what you want. You and I have to learn to pray the right kind of prayers if we're to be disciples of Jesus. So, for example, James and John came to Jesus in chapter 10, and they asked for the seats of honor at his right and his left in his coming kingdom. And Jesus said, no. (laughs) James 4, verse 3 in the New Testament says, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. I mean, that verse alone contradicts all the selfish and godless prayers that prosperity gospel preachers encourage. (laughs) It's people praying for things that are their passions, selfish things. But think about the context even here in Mark, about what's been happening in these previous chapters. If you've been here to hear the expositions on them. Jesus has been teaching about what a life of true faith in God is like, what it means to be a disciple of the Messiah. He says disciples give up their lives. They deny themselves to follow Jesus. He says that disciples are servants of other people above all else. They live to serve. He's taught on how dangerous riches are, how having your heart set on money and wealth will likely keep you out of heaven. He says that true disciples will give up houses and family in order to follow him. And that suffering is something that every true disciple will experience. Okay, now, with all those things in mind, would you pray for wealth and luxury items? Would you pray to God demanding that you be healthy and wealthy? I don't think so. True disciples won't pray for things like that. They will pray in ways that are consistent with who Christ is and what He taught and what He stands for. He stands for the kingdom of God. But you know, I I, I don't want the accent in my teaching this afternoon about these verses to be what not to pray for. I want them to be on what you should pray for. Because this is a promise to us who follow Jesus. And you and I should want to harness this great privilege of prayer. The first thing to know is that this privilege of powerful prayer is not just for anyone. It's for those who have trusted in Jesus the Messiah for the forgiveness of their sins. They've become disciples of Jesus. Just like he's been describing in his teaching in Mark, you've lost your life, you've denied yourself, you've taken up your cross, and you've followed Jesus. That's who he's speaking to. And one indication of this is who Jesus says has this privilege of prayer in that last verse in this paragraph, verse 25. Jesus says, and whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. So people of true faith in Jesus are people who forgive others because they themselves have been forgiven of all their sins by God. They know that their sins are so many and so terrible 
and so burdensome that to withhold forgiveness from others is to simply ignore how much God has forgiven them. And so people who have true faith in God when they pray are people who have turned to God for forgiveness and in turn, they forgive others. That's who these promises are for. Is that you? Is that you? Have you trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sin? Jesus Christ can forgive anyone of their sin because of what He did on the cross. He offered Himself as a substitute for us. The punishment and the judgment that we deserved, He took on Himself so that we could become sons and daughters of God. Only Jesus can offer this. Only Jesus can forgive your sin. Now, once we've turned away from our sin in repentance and faith in Jesus, we have this great privilege to ask Him anything that's consistent with who He is and what He taught and what He stands for in the kingdom of God. But many of you may not know how to use this privilege, and we have to learn how to do that in our Christian life. And one way to learn is to listen carefully to our prayers here in the church service. Sometimes we pray a prayer of confession like Brandon led us in today. We want to confess our sin, not just sins in general. We want to confess specific sins. And usually when the person who leads us in a prayer of confession here in our service prays, they're confessing sins that are related to the passages that we've been reading for that day. There's an infinite number of sins that we have to confess to the Lord. <laughs> we'll never run out. Other times you'll hear a prayer of praise. And in that case, the person is praying simply praises for all of the incredible characteristics of who God is. That He's majestic, that He's all-powerful, that He's infinite in knowledge and wisdom, that He's perfect in love and full of grace and truth, things like that. It's good for us to praise the Lord. All of those things that you as a Christian would check the box, yes, that's true. But we need to praise Him for those things because inevitably our view of God shrinks through the week. <laughs> and so we need to praise Him so that He becomes as big as He actually is in our view. When we pray that kind of prayer, it teaches us about who God is and gives us confidence to ask Him for big things. The pastoral prayer is another prayer that we pray, and it teaches us the kind of things to ask God for. It includes prayers for each of us to grow in Christ in different ways, for God to work in our church and in our city and in this country, for our, the leaders in government and business and education or media, leaders everywhere in this society. We're instructed to do that in the New Testament. For other churches near and far, we're not the only church in this land, thank God. Other churches are preaching the gospel. We want them to prosper spiritually. And we want to pray for people who haven't heard the gospel. We want them to come to Christ. Sometimes that seems impossible. 1.1 billion Hindus turning to the Lord, that's a big prayer. We should pray it. In fact, when someone prays from the front, 
you should be learning that those are the kinds of things that you should pray individually. And when they pray from the front, listen and hear that they're praying the prayers for us. They're leading us in prayer. Don't just listen to them as kind of an auditory spectator. (laughs) Agree with them in prayer. Lean into the prayer, so to speak. Silently echo those prayers along with the person praying. And imagine yourself agreeing with that person praying as if you were standing before the Lord because you are. I wonder, brothers and sisters, will you take Jesus at His word here? Have your prayers shrunk when they need to grow and expand? Will you pray bold prayers for things that seem impossible? Think about it. What about a prayer that there would come a day when there are multiple churches here in this country that are filled with Emirati people? That's a bold prayer. Let's pray for it. And while we ask God for that, let's ask Him how we might be some of the people that God uses to bring about the answer to that prayer. As Jesus teaches his disciples about the power of faith-filled prayer, they're on their way back to Jerusalem. And when they get there, they encounter the religious leaders who saw his words and actions that condemned the corrupt worship in the temple on the day before. But Jesus doesn't avoid them, does he? I can imagine being a disciple on the way back to Jerusalem that day. Jesus, are you sure we want to go back to the temple today? But Jesus goes back to the temple. He knows what he's doing. Jesus doesn't avoid them. And when confronted, he rejects these faithless leaders. That's the third point in the sermon this afternoon. Jesus rejects faithless leaders. He rejects faithless leaders. Verses 27 through 33. Jesus made his way back to the temple complex. And as he's walking there, a group of the chief priests, the scribes, And the elders all approach him. Now, all of those different kinds of leaders would have made up what was called the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish leadership council. There were 71 members of it, and they were very, very powerful. They say to him in verse 28, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority to do them? Now, they rightly recognize that his very actions and his words... In those, Jesus is claiming great authority. He has authority over the temple, even over them, in fact, he's claiming. But rather than answer their question directly, Jesus, of course, asks them a question. Was the baptism of John from heaven or was it from man? Jesus is asking them whether or not they believe that John the Baptist was sent from God. He's saying, essentially, do you believe that John the Baptist was a true prophet of God? Or do you think that he was not from God and therefore a false prophet? That's really the question. Now, if they say he was sent from God or heaven in this case, Jesus will ask, why didn't you believe him? Why didn't you follow him? Why didn't you guys go down to the River Jordan and get baptized and repent of your sins? But they think to themselves, if we 
say that he was a false prophet or simply a man acting on his own without the authority of God, then the people will all rise up and rebel against us because the people believe that he was a true prophet. Jesus has them backed into a corner, as Jesus usually does. And so they say, we don't know. DK, don't know. It's a faithless answer. It's a false answer, actually. It's actually a lie. They do have an opinion, but they are not interested in telling the truth. And so Jesus refuses to answer their question. He rejects them as faithless leaders. They're not worthy to hear a direct answer from him about the source of his authority. Jesus' rejection of them is the beginning of his judgment of them. They're out to destroy him, and so he'll not be drawn into their traps. If they were men of true faith, they would have recognized John's authority as coming from God. And if they were men of true faith, they wouldn't have had to ask Jesus by what authority he was asking. They would have recognized him as the Messiah, just like the disciples did, despite all of their flaws and their shortcomings. To reject Jesus' supreme authority as the Son of God, sent to lay down his life as a ransom for sinners, will make anyone subject to his judgment. There are only two categories of people, those who have faith in Jesus and those who do not. That's the picture that the Bible paints. Jesus' condemnation of the corrupt religion of the temple and its faithless leaders here in Mark 11 is just a foretaste of the judgment that will come for them one day. This Jesus will come again one day And he won't simply disrupt corrupt worship like he did in the temple courts that day. And he won't just outsmart faithless leaders. He will make a final judgment and it will have eternal consequences. In Matthew 25, Jesus tells about that day of judgment. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Jesus goes on to say here in Matthew 25 of how both of those on his right and on his left will be evaluated, and those on his right will be found to have had faith in him. And those on his left will be found to have had none. And in their lives, they would have set themselves in opposition to God's Son and therefore to God. Jesus finishes that illustration in Matthew 25 of that last day by saying this, And these, those without faith, will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. That's the same Jesus of our passage. Today, where do you stand with Christ? Where do you stand with Him? If He came today, would you be found to have been trusting in Him? The good news is that this same Jesus with the authority to judge, He also has the authority to forgive sins. 
and to grant new life to spiritually dead people like us. Oh, brothers and sisters, for now, He's granting life to those who turn to Him in repentance and faith. His death on the cross ransoms people from sin and death by His blood and by His broken body. We're redeemed and prepared for that day. Will you turn to Him? Paul recounts to the Thessalonian Christians how Jesus will judge everyone. That Jesus is the same Jesus who can save whoever turns to Him now. He says about the Thessalonians, You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Let's pray to this Jesus. Heavenly Father, we praise You that You are our judge and that when You judge, You are just and that Your judgments are good. Lord, we think about Your final judgment. We think about the book of Revelation where You pass judgment on all wickedness, including and up to Satan himself. And we read of how Your people will shout, Hallelujah! for your judgment. Lord, teach us to appreciate your authority and to revel in your judgment even now. Oh Lord, may we be people on whom is found the fruits of righteousness and faith. In Christ's name, amen. Well, today we're going to be taking part in the Lord's